How you guys doing, Chinemaji family? It's your host, Mark Karaki. Excited to bring you yet another episode of the podcast. This week, I had the privilege of sitting down with Mr. Mark Mwangi, CEO and co-founder of Amitrack, a logistics startup taking on the gargantuan challenge of bringing trust, transparency, and efficiency in the trucking transportation industry on the continent of Africa. Another great founder problem fit narrative, because as a student, Mark actually drove trucks to pay his way through school. So no surprise that he would be uniquely qualified to see the opportunity to modernize the same industry in Africa. If you ask him, Mark will tell you that his success is a consequence of a series of lucky breaks. But if you listen carefully between the lines, you will hear that it's a consequence of working hard and working smart. This is a great story about the willingness to go after the calling in your heart, even when it seems crazy. Enjoy the podcast. Mr. Mark Mwangi, welcome to the Chile Magic Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to speak with you. Um, you know, huge fan of, of what you're doing. I think Amitrack is a very interesting um, venture in a, in, a, in a competitive landscape. So I can't wait to kind of learn how you're different and what you're doing. It seems like you guys have, have got some traction. So um, maybe start with just you telling us what Amitrack is and, and what problem you're trying to solve and, and how things are going at a high level before we dive into it. Yeah, I mean, Amitrack is a digital um, marketplace for deliveries. I guess you could say uh, a bit like uh, Uber, but for trucks. And we are basically trying to bring trust and transparency to transport by connecting transporters with uh, cargo owners in a fair uh, and very transparent manner. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, huge problem on the continent, right? Logistics is drives economy, economies, essentially. Uh, so, so massive opportunity. So kudos to that. We can't wait to dive into the details of how that's going. But um, let's, let's go into your background a little bit. So you studied mathematics in university, uh, University College of London. So you are, you are one of those mathematics brains. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up and how did you end up studying math? Yeah, so actually I, I actually started off by studying actuarial science and due to challenges in uh, finance as a whole, um, I didn't manage to keep up with payments. I was self-funded. And the maths, the, math, the mathematics school was, uh, or rather the dean was more forgiving than the, uh, the actual science one. And he allowed me to work a lot more and take time off so I could, you know, fund my studies. Awesome. Fantastic. And that was University College of London. Was that no, your it's master's? Actually, it, it, yeah. it was actually City University. I can see why they mix up, but it's actually City University of London. So uh, got it, just, a, got it. just a short walk from the other. So there's two of them, right? That's got right. It, That's it. right. And that was your, your master's program? Is that, was that right? Or was that No, that was my undergrad. That was my undergrad. Uh, so I did an undergrad in, in mathematics uh, with options in finance and economics. Interesting. And, and how did that come to be? Were you always a math brain and you knew you wanted to go down that path? You know, when you yeah, were in high so, school, what, what, were your, what was your thought process? Yeah, so I hate studying. Um, I hate reading books. Um, Boring books. I love reading books. The, the books in school, I found boring. So something like law 
or something like uh, geography. You're looking at a lot of hours just reading material. Dry material. Yeah. yeah. So the joy, the joy of mathematics is that if you understand the rules and you're willing to practice, then it's possible to do really well. Um, and that's why I took mathematics because um, I actually, in order to, so, so in order to fund my education, I actually drove a truck at night uh, right. in and around Heathrow Airport. And I did that full time. So wow. I would be, I'll be driving from 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. And then I'll do my math degree sort of from 9 a.m. to sort of 5 p.m. And Jeez. the, the easiest way, uh, the easier thing to do was to practice equations and you could do that in the cabin, you know, so long as you were practicing, mm-hmm. you could do a lot. Uh, it, it felt a lot harder to try and go, you know, read a law book or something. Um, that would put you to sleep right away yeah, exactly, in the truck. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, some of that explains what happened at university. So, so when you were in high school, were you a math brain or were you just, where were you in terms of, of math? Because I, the reason I asked this is because math to me was, was just this thing that was a challenge. And I was more in the humanity side and the business side. And I always looked at the people who, who are good at math and I was just like, these people's minds work differently. So yeah. how did you, uh, yeah, what, what was that? What was your relationship with math, mathematics before choosing to stay awake at night doing equations? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to throw yourself back to 80s in Kenya. It wasn't optional, right? right. <laughs> it wasn't something that, and, and to be honest, it was one of the places your mom's finger went to on the report card when it came home. She went straight, what did, what did you get in math? What did you get in English? What did you get in science? And that generation of parents was a lot more interested in what they saw as the subjects that can get you into a good career in the future. Right, um, right. So I think that together with, I, I, I don't know, I just had an eye for it or I was lucky. I was something I could do. Um, so for me, it was just natural to, to head that way. Got it, got it. Okay. Yeah, so because for me, I wanted to get out as far away from math, mathematics as soon as I was done with high school. <laughs> I was like, this is not my, my bag. But yeah, and then so you went into investment banking. Um, what was that? What was that path into that like? I know London is a you know center of finance, uh, one of the capitals of finance around the world. So yeah. probably very natural to go into that. Talk, talk to us about that. How did you end up in that? And, yeah. So that like? yeah. So the theme of luck continues, right? Because the fact that I was working full time and studying full time uh, meant that when we went in for the interviews for uh, graduate programs at university or just after the degree, um, uh, it made me stand out from the crowd. Um, yeah. and, and because of the kind of hours and the, the, the sort of work involved in investment management, investment banking, um, it meant that, you know, I got a position, um, in, in a, in an investment management firm and that's how I got, I got, I got, it, it's, it's luck. I, I didn't do anything like specifically special or yeah, I was just lucky. Interesting. So they saw somebody who's a grinder, somebody with that immense work ethic. And they were like, yeah, this guy will fit in right here for the crazy exactly. hours we have to drive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Fascinating. And so man, like, you know, you, you said you'd work from, is it 6 PM to 4 AM and then nine right. to five. Yep. And, how, how did you, how did you manage that? How did you stay sane? How do you stay awake? What, what, what was, how did you manage that? 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was just the fear of failure and experiencing poverty at 16, 17, and understanding this was the way out, which I guess, again, I guess it's lucky because uh, most teenagers want to have fun and go out clubbing and all the rest of it. But right. when, when you're struggling to pay rent for the smallest room in a shared house and barely making money for dinner and barely making your fees and it's all falling on your shoulders, um, it changes how you, your outlook on work and what that can do for you and the importance of getting, getting, getting good results in, in, in your studies. Uh, it just changes. I guess you mature okay. a lot earlier and, and you understand the consequences of failing much earlier than, than you otherwise would. So it was either that <laughs> or uh, be broke for the rest of your life, which didn't look like a great option. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. so we worked hard. <laughs> yeah, makes, makes sort of sense, man. I can totally relate to that, man. Um, yeah. And so which high school did you go to just to kind of position you in the in the oh, Lord. broader social landscape <laughs> for the Kenyans. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> that's, that's, so that's another that's another story altogether because I I finished um, I did I did okay in my um, I think it was KCP. Uh, I went to Mothaiga Primary and um, I managed to get into Nairobi School. Okay, so you're Pacheri. Uh, that's right. But there was. Uh, uh, a bullying culture at the time I was there. Oh, really? I thought and that I might got, have gone away by then. No, we actually lost two kids in my year. One, 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 one drowned in the pool because he was hiding wow. in the, he was hiding from the prefects in the pool house in the rafters and the Jeez. pool was covered, right? So they used to cover the pool mm -hmm. at night. So when he fell in, they couldn't rescue him. And the second kid, I think they fed him salt, like two kilos salt. of salt. You must remember that story. Yeah, they fed him like two kilos of salt in the, uh, in the prefix something room, and he didn't make it. Anyway, um, I got into a lot of fights because I really resisted. I got into a lot of fights and- You were not about uh, that life, right? You were uh, like, no, 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 I, no I, just, I just thought, I kept thinking there were so many of, of us in the first year, and there were such few prefects. I couldn't understand why we didn't fight back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we'd agree to do it. But every time it happened, we'd just be mean as wrong. Oh, wow. The people would shriek away. Isn't is, is right. that interesting, very emblematic about uh, our, in a way, man, that's kind of emblematic about our culture, you know, in a way, right? We always, yeah. we always don't go big, but when it comes to it, you find yeah. yourself alone. And eventually the, the deputy headmaster at the time I think it was, I, I don't want to say his name on the podcast, but he had enough of me and uh, <laughs> sent me home. <laughs> oh, good? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Then did yeah. you shift schools and, and or how did that, how so, did you? So I get home and my dad's on a business trip and <laughs> um, uh, I, I really just want to, we used to live in South B at the time uh, and I just wanted to go to a day school. I just didn't want to sleep. I'd had yeah, it. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of tasted bones. <laughs> and I actually, I actually begged my mom to let me go to Jamuri High. Okay. Uh, called Bilimani or Buru High. And she really did like the reputations of those schools. 
Right. It wasn't not, 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 not a national school. So exactly. it was a downgrade. Exactly. Exactly. So I got, I got enrolled into Lusinga school in, uh, uh, I guess, Lavington, Kawangware. Uh, and, 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 and yeah, and that's how I moved from the Kenyan system to, uh, uh, the, the British, uh, school schooling system. Man, we have such similar backgrounds because, <laughs> so I, I was, I, I, my high school years we spent in South Sea and I fought the boarding school thing. I, I was at Star Air and the first year they, they, my mom bundled me into the boarding school and man, that was enough. I was like, man, I'm, I'm done. There's no way I'm living in this very cloistered controlled environment when I'm, you know, when I was in primary school, I could go anywhere. I was free. And here I was kind of dealing with this boarding school stuff. So I can totally relate to that. But let's fast forward to now, you know, you've done your master's in, uh, what was your master's in? I didn't do a master's. I just have an undergraduate. Oh, you didn't do that? Oh, thank you. Okay, fantastic. Even better. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and so now you're in the, in, the, in the investment banking world. You spent quite a bit of time in that. Um, yeah, I, I did. I did. So actually, strictly speaking, it's investment management, but I guess it's just the different sides of the same coin. So to keep things simple, just investment banking. But I got, I got into uh, a company uh, called Port Colonial, and then that got bought by another company. But I had made a, a very good impression, uh, or rather I had a good relationship with uh, my team leader. And when the acquisition happened, that team was not particularly happy. Uh, so they moved into a hedge fund. And these hedge funds were this alternative investment houses where they could do really interesting things. And they only ever really took very experienced people. You did, you did. And because I had this relationship with the desk I was working on, when they moved, they took me with them. So I nice. lucked out again. So this theme just keeps going. And, and so I end up on this um, equity um, hedge fund desk um, with some really experienced guys. Um, uh, the, the company was called Bluegrass Capital. And yeah, uh, we're still friends with most of them. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, what, what, are, what else? What, how would you describe the investment management world, right? What characterizes that? You know, we hear long hours and so on and so forth. But, you know, maybe characterize, tell us how you describe it and what are some of the main lessons you took away from that experience? Yeah, it definitely takes a certain type of individual to live in our world. Um, I, I remember once a senior person told me, um, it's, it's like buying a Ferrari. If it's quick, I'm not surprised. If it's slow, we all have a problem. Right? <laughs> you know? and, and, and that was the culture then. And it was sort of, you eat what you kill. Um, you're, expected, you're expected to perform all the time. And a lot of that performance, um, is, you know, maybe more than half of that performance, again, is, is a bit of whatever happens outside happens. You know, Obama mm -hmm. stands up and talks and the market turns and you aren't ready for right. it and you're still responsible for the losses. So it's um, definitely, they're, they're definitely more relaxing uh, careers to, to be in. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're as good as your last uh, I guess they, basically. yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Wow. So how did that impact your mindset? How did that shape your thinking and how has that informed who you are today? 
because uh, you could have gone into any other any other industry, which would have had a very different yeah. culture, a very different cadence. How has that shaped you? One of the things that um, I so it it was funny. So I was actually uh, managing to get by and. Um, Really, under uh, you had to really do a lot of analysis of companies to understand their share prices, so you could understand what bets to put. So you know, if you liked a company, you would buy the stock. If you didn't like it, you would sort of sell it forward, so you'd right. buy it back cheap by the future. And and that was the initial role I did for quite a while. And then, um, it, coming up to two thousand and six, uh, there was a bit of a ripple and. Uh, there was opportunities around the company and I somehow ended up on a private equity, equity desk. Okay. And that was again, very, very lucky because it meant that I got to run some businesses for a while. So okay. that really allowed me to understand business. It allowed me to, you know, I ran a mine in Canada, which allowed me to understand how that industry worked. It allowed me to understand things like company culture, incentives, management, people, culture, you know, and then uh, at the same time, um, I ran an oil rig business in Ecuador that taught me a lot about government politics and business. Uh, And I ran uh, a dredging startup in China. Um, So I had a lot of air miles. But in that whole process, immersing myself in those businesses uh, really improved how I think about business, my understanding of financial statements and relating those numbers to the real world. Because then you knew that, you know, if you had to adjust, you know, something like how much money is tied up in working capital, I really knew the challenge. I, I'd done it before. Uh, sure. If I had to, in mining, there's a lot of capital investment, you know, CapEx, uh, buying mm-hmm. equipment, using it mm-hmm. and depreciating and, and tax management. It wasn't just a line in a annual statement. I, I had experienced it. I knew it. I'd been through it. So when I, when I coming up to the recession, in, to the financial crisis in 2009, um, by the time I was leaving that position and moving on, um, I really understood how to look at a business, how to look at management. And I could read between the lines when I had people talking in meetings. For sure. So, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. So that, that basically laid the foundation for you know, you being able to, to find a track and give you the confidence to move in that direction. Is, is that true? I would say it helps, uh, but it, it, it then, it, I think what it really did was it laid the foundation for my next move, which was now um, I moved to a company called Pictay Asset Management, which is a Swiss private bank uh, where I was running an equity portfolio, which also involved anal- analyzing companies. Uh, but that experience meant that I really understood what I was looking at when I sat down to talk to a CEO or look through a financial model, I really understood what this, each of these numbers meant. And I knew when I saw an incentive plan, I could relate back and think, how would those guys that I, I used to work with uh, respond to this incentive plan? And what, it mm-hmm. just brought a slightly better uh, clarity uh, to uh, my analysis of businesses at that point. Uh, and that helped I mean, I must say that uh, Pixie Asset Management was a brilliant company to work for. I had a great team. Um, they gave me massive opportunities and it allowed me to rise through the ranks and, and sort of get to a senior investment manager position. Um, and, and yeah, that was, that was an awesome experience um, being there. 
yeah, so you know, it sounds like you are you are up into the right in your career, high flying, and then and then what was next? It sounds like that's when you 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 took the foray into entrepreneurship. And always fascinated by how people make that move and why they make that move. Because, you know, everything on paper looked like you were having the time of your life in terms of career. Things were working out. How did you, what was the next step after that? And how did you make yeah. that step? Uh, I just realized that I wanted to do more with my life than what was happening at the time. So bear in mind, you're living in London. So you're part of what they call the rat race. Uh, days march, days just march into each other. It's very organized, you know, at nine, you know, at sort of 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. You're all, you're all on the train to the office. At 10 <laughs> Everybody's going to stone face. Nobody's smiling. Yeah. You can't, yeah. you, you don't say hi to anybody because you break the, the fabric of reality. That's and right. People don't want that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And then, you know, at 10 a.m. you take your coffee, you take your lunch, you go to the gym, you come home. And the day starts and they just march into one long day. Wow. And, and yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I really appreciated what was going on in terms of the opportunities I had there. But at the same time, uh, I wanted more out of life than, than that. Um, I, I sort of felt like, yes, yeah. exactly. I just wanted more out of life. And then I guess the, the difficult bit was getting my head around um, what's the right thing to do. Do I stay mm -hmm. here because I'm, I'm doing okay and I'm not going to laugh or anything, or do I do the brave thing? And, and, and at the time it wasn't even about coming back to Nairobi. Um, it was just about building something more meaningful to me. And right. I quickly realized that I, I began to understand the nature of a difficult position was that there, there wasn't a right answer. You know, if I said, right. what color, what color shirt? is the correct color, um, whatever you came up with, then everybody should be wearing that shirt. You right. know, so the reason, the reason it's a difficult decision is, um, at the time I thought, um, is, is because the, unlike all other questions, you know, if I said, which, which, which bag is heavier, you could lift one bag and lift the other bag. And the answers to mm -hmm. the question, you know, the bag that feels heavy is the heavier one. But when it comes to this sort of difficult decisions, the answers in you. And there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong if you want to stay in a safe life that's a bit boring. Uh, but there is also nothing wrong if you want to take a risk and, and try take an adventure, do something. And for me, it seemed like once I had that thought in my mind, I was like, how can you not try? So I jumped. <laughs> how, how, how long did that process take? Because it's, it's not something, yeah. I'm sure you marinated on that for a while. Oh God, I thought I'd gone mad, right? You know, this, it, it, just, it all sounds very nice now. But at that time, I thought I'd go crazy. And it probably took about <laughs> a, a year. It, took, it took, probably took about a year to, to sort of, you know, make that jump. Okay, fantastic. And, and what did you jump into or onto? I, initially, I just left. Um, I spent about three months reading up on stuff and just getting my head together and getting over the shock of what I've just done to my life. And then... <laughs> um, it so happened that uh, my younger brother was also going through a similar thing. And between me, him, and another friend, uh, we decided to start, uh, 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 we, we had a startup called Dalwin, and uh, it still exists. So Dalwin was trying to automate uh, the European gas market. 
um, basically disrupting the utility uh, and connecting consumers directly to the gas majors. Um, wow. And then that's where Ambitious. we started. That's where we started. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a very established uh, industry sector. It, and you guys felt that, you know, you could improve it, which, which is, which is fascinating. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's give funny Give us a now. sense of how why? you went through that and what, yeah, why and, <laughs> oh, and how it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to make me sound like uh, I have a really big ego. But... So the theory went something like, so Google, Amazon, you know, all these guys can have millions and millions of customers. And as far as we could tell, the role of the utility in Europe was just to connect, you know, Shell, BP to, um, you know, 50, 60 million consumers in, in the UK. Uh, and we thought, well, if Amazon can have a million consumers, then Shell can have a million consumers. They don't need the utility sitting between them and, and, and mm -hmm. sitting between their product and, and, and the consumer. And so mm -hmm. we thought we could use artificial intelligence and generally tech to connect because gas is piped in Europe. Okay. Right. So, and they were just on the, um, uh, they were just about to launch the digital gas meter, which meant that okay. the, the utility could get, um, your consumption data, uh, remotely. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, hold on. Um, that means I can buy my gas directly from the major. I don't need a utility in between reselling it to me. So that, that was the, that was the theory. And it actually, we had a demo and it worked. So you could do it. It's amazing. That's a yeah. really cool idea. So basically <laughs> digital, <laughs> it sounds like innovation cut the middleman without even him right. knowing that's going on. So, because Correct. initially they had these people coming to read meters. Now exactly. you people to read meters. That's what, that was a utilities job, putting people Correct. to walk around the neighborhood Correct. and read meters. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and, okay. Fascinating. And we How thought did that we, play out? we just digitize it. Oh, it went okay, except for the fact that you'd sit, you'd sit at the end of the demo and these majors would say things like, this is fantastic. We're really interested. Um, could you come back for our demo day in 2023? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Their timelines are just very different yeah, than yours. Yeah. <laughs> I, no one had the same. Well, I didn't have the same power um, to do that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, we decided not to. Uh, pursue that pursue it. yeah 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 it's 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 a tough one because you're selling to a very established you know entity their their pace of movement is 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 very it's very different a startup needs to move quickly get customers so yeah now let's move to amitrack so 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 how did you make the move back to kenya talk us through what happened and into amitrack yeah, so we thought, we thought to ourselves, look, you know, in, in Europe, we're just another startup. But if we go to Kenya, which was our, all our hometowns, um, then, you know, we're closer to the market culturally and we might have an, an edge. So right. off we came and we decided to try and use tech to help a large industry uh, in Kenya. And I mean, we run into all sorts of interesting challenges. So would walk into an office and the CEO doesn't even have a computer. Uh, a couple of times we'd go to some, you know, some really large financial institutions and that buy into maybe getting a cloud solution to help them with their customer service. And then we'd be shown around and they still have a data, they still have a, a, a server room 
they still had like the the CRT screens, you know. The, <laughs> you know, I feel like whoa, <laughs> it's gonna take a huge investment just to get these guys to the point where they can actually start to benefit from modern technology. Uh, right. And so, and were you, I, at that time, were you were you looking for an idea, or you had an idea? What were you working on? Oh no, we had an idea, and the idea was to using uh, the same idea that we had before, which was business process automation using AI. Um, okay. eventually, but then we would sort of think, okay, so let's take something like a really simple example, something like calling your customer calls you up and let's say randomly you're an insurance company and you can tell that this guy has had a maternity claim, but he doesn't have life insurance or he's got an 18 year old daughter and he's only got one car policy, you know? So these were the sort of things we were saying. Or you owe me, you owe us money on the life side of the insurance business, but we're supposed to pay money on the property and casualty side of the insurance business. So it was just connecting this business process information so that uh, 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 a team sitting within a, a large business could see both sides of the organization really quickly. Right. In order for, <coughs> excuse me, in order for our technology to work, you had to have some basics in place. You know, you right. had to have modern systems. You had to be in the cloud. You know, you, you, a lot of these companies had stuck with the old way of doing technology where the server room is, 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 is a big part of the office space. And right. they rely on that connection to, it just, it just did work because it, they yeah. wouldn't even understand what we were trying to achieve. Yeah. Install software. And when, what, what yeah. year was this? This is 2018, early 2018. Okay. So not too, not too long ago. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so you you are, you are chasing down these, this business process automation concept. You're running into all kinds of infrastructure gap challenges, right? Modernization That's right. challenges. That's right. That's right. And then, and then, and then, and then how, how do we end up at Amitrop then? So then I had, I have uh, family friends in the cement business and they started talking to me about some of the challenges they were having with uh, delivery, specifically tracking. And in that conversation, the idea of this uh, informal uh, broker came up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it caught all of our interest. And I was, um, I was basically the one who was non-techie. So I spent a lot of time just running around uh, Nairobi and its, its, its environment, its, its uh, neighborhoods, surroundings. Yeah. Uh, surroundings. And basically just trying uh, meeting drivers in uh, Siokimao, Athi River, and Bakasi, Juja, Pagani, Maimahio. And I'd basically go for it. I'd invite them all for an evening out in what would normally be quite an informal establishment. And I'd have a survey, just a questionnaire. And right. once, once they finished the questionnaire, I'd buy them a beer. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, yeah, I did. You know, to give you an idea of the quality of the places, uh, I'll never forget feeding and having drinks with something like 20 drivers in the cement bit of Athen River. Uh -huh. And I think the bill was like uh, $120. <laughs> it was like, wow. okay, this is the sort of, you know, it was really informal. I mean, it was really, right. yeah. But I right. learned a lot doing that. And, um, that, that helped me understand that, you know, this broker was really hurting the industry. 
um, mm. and creating a lot of friction between the cargo owner and the transport. And that's mm-hmm. actually how we started Amitrak. So Amitrak interestingly started on the transporter side of the, of the equation. Right. And it was trying to sort that out that made, me, made us realize that we could do this digitally uh, and do it a lot better than um, uh, what the middleman who was informal with a phone and paper, manual, tedious, um, and sometimes dishonest uh, was, was up to. <laughs> His basket, his basket, his value proposition basket contained all those things. So, so, so essentially, uh, you're you're disambiguating this value chain, that uh, supply chain that's that's existed for a long time. Very informal. People have entrenched themselves in there, and you're like, you know what? We can connect suppliers, essentially, to the transport or the logistics piece of that without needing this middle person who's an aggregator of sorts. What did they provide? Did they provide information yeah. or did they also provide information and tracks? Did they do scheduling? Yeah. What, what, what was the problem so, you're trying to solve in total? So the, this informal middlemen somehow know where all the loads are around them and they know where the transporters are. So they have an information Got advantage it. and Got they it. basically will uh, get secure load and then secure truck. Um, and they would maybe pay a deposit for the truck to do the load as if it was theirs. And then mm-hmm. once the transporter is done, he has to come and look for this middleman to get the rest of his money. And you can see Got now it. all the opportunities. Wow. Inefficiency. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So he might do something like exaggerate the distance to the cargo owner and really minimize the distance to the driver. And actually, this right. was a really interesting discovery at the time uh, because a lot of drivers then got in trouble with the truck owner. Because he thought they were only going, you know, a shorter distance. But actually, it's the broker had sort of played what games and he's going a lot farther and he runs out of fuel or he's accused of, you know, um, uh, misusing or mishandling his fueling um, and, and, and he gets in trouble that way. And so it was right. things like that that, that we were, uh, it was that little injustice there that we thought this could be an opportunity. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Uber for, for, for trucks, session, for logistics, that's basically what it is. Yeah, yeah, a, li- a little bit like that, yes. Yeah, to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. So fantastic. So, so, so you guys started your own fleet, it sounds like? Um, or no, 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 no. We, we okay. never owned a single asset. We didn't own a single asset. So we, ran around, we ran around and registered a whole bunch of transporters uh, uh, and then scrapped to try and get our fast few loads. And yeah, you had this chicken and egg problem uh, right. where you, you, you keep looking for one to fill the other. And yeah, mm-hmm. the, the rest is and history. How, how long did you operate in that mode for, right? I mean, we still, op- we, still, we still operate in that mode at a much larger scale, but I think this is a problem that never goes away. It's just much harder to get it up and running. Um, but yeah, we still are using, we, don't, we still don't own any vehicles. Uh, so we have a lot of transporters uh, registered on the platform, and we we now have a lot of businesses as well registered on the other side, and and we connect uh, those it. two. Right. Yeah. We, like I guess my question was because initially you didn't have any tech, right? You were just agri- You know, you were doing it manually. When did you no, build? We, we always we always had tech. In fact, we built the platform Got it. Um, in the back end of 2018, and we launched it um, in March of 2019 and got our fast load that month. 
Um, we did <laughs> we did twenty four hundred dollars in March of twenty nineteen. So sorry, twenty four hundred shillings in total <laughs> for March twenty nineteen. Uh, what was and, that load? Do you remember? <laughs> what what did you shoot? I do, I do. We helped a, a young lady move from Pangani to Fika in a pickup. Awesome. <laughs> Customer number one. I hope you yeah. have a picture and, and all that. <laughs> Actually, I don't because we were so stressed looking for the next one. But yeah, we didn't we didn't even yeah. You want to try to be ceremonial or <laughs> no, we no. It wasn't trying the time. to survive. Oh. <laughs> Got it. Right. So th three years, nine months into this. Uh and, and before we even go into that, I mean Is it three Africa, years nine, is it three years, nine months or three years? It's three years. It says it says three years nine months on your LinkedIn. So but yeah, that, okay, that, that, three years. That's a bit naughty. It's actually three years. Yeah. So March twenty nineteen to date. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Sounds good. And, and then before we even go into the timeline, so Africa operates on this concept of of opacity and lack of information and cartels. What's been your experience with that? Have you gotten any pushback from, you know? Yeah, we do. We do. We do. We do come across. Yeah, we do. We do come across it, and um, I mean, I, I'm really of the, the believer that the world is changing. So, if you look, if you remember when we were growing up, you would have adverts like, I don't know if you remember this one, Smanoff and friends. So it implied that if you drank Smanoff, you know, you'd get friends, or you're the cool you'd person. Have, you're the cool exactly, guy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or you would have things like uh, a car that you knew was probably not that reliable but they had a really pretty lady and nice music and the advertisement and, and that's what sold it. And I think the world is changing now where uh, the best product wins. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, not the best where, marketing. That's right. Not the best marketing. So now your, your product, you know, it's the last online review that dictates, right. you know, it's Mark at, you know, Mark 54 at yahoo.com, you know, right. saying you're a great, seller on the platform that gives you the next job. And Couldn't I think, I think as the generations in Kenya changes and we get this younger uh, population coming through, they're looking for a better solution. They're not pretty us. much. They're more tech savvy. They're more, they have more of a sense of justice about them. Um, and that helps to get through things like cartels and, 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 and you know, that's a, yeah. Man, that's that, that, you know, so we, we have a venture studio, we build product and what you're saying is so important because I always say that a core part of a belief that I hold is the companies that will win the future are the ones that, you know, build around a human well-being concept or human well-being thesis, right? The ones that prioritize human well-being at the core of their venture because of exactly what you said. <clears throat> that nowadays people are looking for, you know, real value. And because the internet provides, again, access to information that wasn't there before. So people can actually look at reviews. People can actually do their research. You know, information is free. It's not, you know, sequestered in some kind of ad agencies kind of narrative that they can put, you know, lipstick on a pig. And so it's a very hopeful thing because now you can remove all the inefficiency on all the graft and all that corruption basically from, from the middle of the whole of so many sectors. So that's really, yeah. really exciting to me. Yep. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think, especially when I first came back in 2018, I was really blue-eyed and so hopeful. Right, but right. That's reality bites still. <laughs> Kenya, Kenya slapped me in the face a few times and made me realize that, uh, yeah, it's going to happen, but it's, it's going to take... Some it, time. It's, it's, it's going to take some time for, for us to maybe, maybe stop comparing ourselves to each other and to other countries and thinking it's okay because we're better than Uganda, but maybe start looking at ourselves with our resources and our talents and start asking the question, why didn't we do better? Right. You know, that's, that's always the right. case. Yeah, that's always a, bit, a little bit of disappointment because honestly, having lived in London, and traveled around the world, there's nothing that Kenyan cannot do. Nothing. That's so you know, true. That's it's so the true. only thing that stands between us and making huge progress and huge strides uh, forward in business and in healthcare and in education. Uh, the only thing standing between us and those things is us. And it's actually just yep. the willpower, you know, the will yep. to change and the will to step forward. So I- I'm still optimistic, but cautiously so. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's our mindset and culture that holds us back. You know, this, this notion that there's so much more opportunity around us that we do not have to be, you know, competing. And it's not even, it's not even so much competing. It's like, there's a sense of, there's a sense of like, there's a limited pool to pull from. While, look, it's not something to talk about Kenya. Let's talk about the region. I mean, if you look at it, this is the high watermark in terms of tech and innovation and entrepreneurship. So we shouldn't be thinking about Kenya as a market. We should be thinking about this East African block as a singular market, right? Of course, it's, it's more complicated than that. But fundamentally, if you have a great product, like you said before, you know, the market will find you, the customers will find you. So there's so much more opportunity for us to actually step into that we need to kind of just change that. But anyway, let's move on to now how you actually started the business because, you know, a business costs money. You have to, you have to feed yourself. You have to put a roof over your head. Startups are difficult. Um, how did you fund your business from, from day one to now? I guess, yeah. yeah how did so you fund again, your business? Again, again, luck comes into it again because my brother was, um, is a double degree from MIT, a super genius sort of guy. Uh, very, That's lucky. Uh, That's lucky on your part. Exactly, exactly. So he, he, he built a lot of tech to start with. Um, again, I was lucky enough to have been in the financial industry in London. So I had some savings on me. And so I sunk okay. a lot of that. I sunk a lot of that into the business um, uh, for the first few for, for initially. And, and then that got us off the ground and uh, up and running. Awesome, awesome. So your personal savings, because, you know, a lot of times people underestimate that they think they, they can get funded from day one, you know, yeah. and so you, you've raised $4 million up to, to date. Is that your total raise or I there's th- more, uh, more to that? No, there's more than that. So four was the last round. Uh, we've done about five in total. Five in total. And so obviously by the time somebody's putting money into your business, they need to have seen something. Of course, you had a fantastic team, you, your brother, you, you've got the bona fides to actually get somebody's attention that if anybody's going to do something in this space, it's going to be you guys. So that's there, but that's generally maybe not enough in this market, in the, in the, in this, in Silicon Valley, where I spend a lot of time, if you come with that credibility, people can actually fund you at an idea stage. You guys were past that. So talk a little bit about, you know, where you had to get to, to raise your first external money. 
yeah, I mean, that definitely was not easy to do the first round. Um, um, I think, I think that African, um, I mean, black founders in general have a slightly harder time as you've seen in the media recently. Um, and a lot of that isn't because they're black per se, it's just because, uh, the biases, which, you know, their biases, it's not, I don't think they're cognitive, um, purposeful, uh, attempts to not fund black business. It's just that they relate more to a Harvard educated, um, uh, investors relate more to people like them. So exactly. it's a lot easier to get funding. Now that said, if you were sitting that's, in It's changing though slightly nowadays. Definitely. And, and, and that's great. Um, it's good to see the progress and the efforts that they're all making. But, you know, if you were sitting, if you were a, a white founder in Silicon Valley, there's only a 2% chance of you getting funding anyway. So if you then, uh, be, if you then become a black founder sitting in the middle of Africa, um, those chances are less. So you're 2% of that 2%. Yeah. So you just, it just becomes a numbers game. So my initial round, we, we probably approached something like 300 investors and wow. ended up with sort of getting a, um, one who said, yeah, we'll find you, but, um, we, 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 we need to follow someone else. We're not going to be the fast ones we're gonna lead them. To, mm -hmm. to put them out. Yeah. We're not going to lead the round. That's right. And then again, because of all that noise we'd made trying to get the fast one in, uh, we had one of our investors reach out to us. And, um, initially I wasn't even sure they were going to invest. So I just complied anyway. And, and then they spoke to me and then they spoke to someone else. And then they spoke to five of my references and I thought, oh, maybe they're going to invest. And, and we got our past lead investor. And then, uh, after that, it's, it's been slightly easier to. To, to close. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely harder. It's getting better, uh, but it's, it's, it's also a numbers game. You, you really have to go for it. Right. And so that was your first, was that a pre-seed round of about yeah, a million dollars? Hard. No, actually we initially raised very little. Um, so the investor's idea was, look, if I invest a million dollars now, um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it in the investors, dynamo, dynamo matches out of, uh, uh, the U S and, um, they, they sort of said to me, look, you know, you don't want to raise a lot of money right now. Uh, we'll give you a little bit, uh, grow the business and, and that will just minimize the dilution you get in the group. So we raised like a quarter of a million dollars, uh, December of 2020. And then, um, we kept raising through the year as we needed. Okay. And yeah. And that, that, that was the first set of million dollars instead of tripling through the course of 2020. Got it. And, and so obviously you're not raised, you are raising because people could see traction. So maybe talk a little bit about that. 2,400 shillings your first month. How yeah. did that grow to map to where people are like, okay, these guys have something here. How does that growth look like? Yeah. So founders are always a very shaky about sharing their numbers. Uh, High level. Keep it. <laughs> um, uh, I can say that, uh, again, we've been, um, we've managed to, um, assemble quite a good team. Um, and we are, uh, uh, we, we, we are family in sort of seven figure numbers now. And, uh, that gives you sort of an idea of, uh, the journey and how far we've come. Yeah, fantastic. In a short period of time. 
so what do you what do you, what do you see you know like you know if, if you i actually run a venture fund as you know so if you're pitching me right now you know uh and you're saying hey i'm raising this where where, where what's this opportunity what does the opportunity look yeah. like um I think the first thing to sort of recognize is that uh, most of logistics has not been digitized, right? So if I sort of lay the, the, the picture of the market, it's large. So the last data goes, I think it's like 2012, 2013. Uh, and by the way, the lack of data really hurts uh, Africa's adventure Big space. Time. Um, Big time. And, and back then the market was 200 billion um, in Africa dollars are growing at, you know, 78% annually on average. And that is on the back of having uh, one of the world's youngest populations. So this is likely to double over the next decade. Um, on top of that, you have the low level of digitization. And then the most exciting is the African Free Trade Zone Agreement, which is now been signed. And by no means is that coming into play in 2022, but I think, you know, it, uh, it will enable African businesses to access uh, more than a billion consumers. So what's exciting there is the fact that uh, at the moment we are a raw material exporting continent and that really hurts us. Um, Big time. Um, I think I'll use the same example I used in the last podcast, but you know, the car tire market alone is 200 billion. Mm -hmm. The most critical raw material into a tire is uh, rubber. Mm -hmm. And 65% of that rubber comes from Liberia. Mm -hmm. But Liberia's GDP in totality is 3 billion. It's a joke, right? It's yeah. one and a half, yeah. one, one and a half percent of the value of the market. And the quickest win for them would be to have a local tire. So if they just made a tire for our most common vehicle right now, which I think is the bike, the motorbike, you know, you could probably quadruple their GDP per capita. And, right. you know, if Kenya, right. if Kenya made tea for the rest of Africa, for example, uh, you, could, you could really move the needle in and around the central province in terms of income. Right. And that's the yeah. exciting bit about African free trade zone agreement. And then um, for Amitrak specifically, the fact that 90% of, you know, transport in Africa, it's more than 90%. You think of Kenya, 90% of goods have to travel by road. <laughs> There's yep, no yep. alternative, right? There's no so alternative. Connecting that and doing it efficiently at scale um, is a huge opportunity, um, <laughs> and that still exists. You know that that that's what we're we're trying to perfect. So trying to make the perfect shipment in Africa is that's that's the vision. Awesome. So you've raised some some money, uh, got some traction. Where have you invested uh, the capital you raised? What, what are you investing in your company? Yeah, so we're obviously just making sure that, you know, we have the uh, processes and the team and the people uh, to take us into the rest of Africa now. Um, so we're opening up into the greater East African region. Um, and then a lot, of the, a lot of the investment is also going into our tech to make sure that, you know, we have a solid um, foundation. Um, and then we look to see what step two is. Got it. And you've mentioned the word people, which is critical in innovation and entrepreneurship. So what's the size and composition of your organization? I know it's growing all the time, but at last count, you know, what's your size and composition in terms of roles? I don't, I don't have the uh, composition. Um, I don't have the composition right now. 
but uh, we sort of have uh, a team of about 70 people. Um, we're made up of um, guys who work with the customers, so operations and sales. Uh, we mm -hmm. have a team that works in technology. Uh, we have a team that works in sort of product and innovation. Um, we have strategy and management. So I think that, that broadly covers, covers the team. Yep. yep, yep. And in terms of, you know, culture and hiring, maybe describe how that has evolved, the challenges you've experienced there and, and how you've gone about that. Yeah, I think this is a challenge for every business in in Africa. The, the talent pool just isn't deep enough. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the large... Western uh, technology companies having set up in Kenya specifically have really driven inflation up in terms of wages. Big time, big time. Um, and finding well-priced, uh, great talent, which you need because running a startup is difficult uh, and talent is a very critical part of getting it right. Uh, is really, really hard uh, right now. It is hard. It's very hard, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. What about so culture? It's been a struggle. You, yeah, I can imagine. Sorry, sorry, got you off. How about culture? How have you, you know, how how would you describe your company culture, or at least the one you aspire to create? Yeah, and that's really that shows your invention because it's it's always an aspiration. I think. Um, I, I I read a, a I can't remember his name now, but a, a great investor said that your culture is the moving average of your actions over the last 50 days. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So for me, this has been a, a really an, an area where I've really had to lean on my senior leadership for guidance because I've never run a team this size before. And as we are, uh, we're trying to put a culture together that is driven, um, a culture that is fair, equitable, um, and, and that really tries to perform well. And, you know, I think it's, it's for us, given this, all this is, it's all very nascent. This team has been growing mm -hmm. quite fast. Right. Uh, right. There's a lot of additional people, you know, we're using name tags, you know, just because wow. everyone's, yeah, everyone's <laughs> Too new. many people. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So we're still trying to put that together, but that the aspiration is definitely for an equitable, um, I, 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 there's a saying I read in how, how Google works. And they had a term that said, no hippos, you know, and it basically it stood for highest income person's opinion. Um, so right. <laughs> it, we, we, we try, we try not to have that here. Got it. Yeah. And you know, last one on this culture thing, you worked in the UK, you worked in London, different culture over there professionally, you know, how would you characterize the differences, right? With what culture here, just, you know, professional culture here. And, what changes would you, if you had a magic wand, would institute to, to, to get us to where to we may be? Yeah, I'm about to get myself in trouble, but hey, I think let's that, go. <laughs> I, I think I think that the 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 English, especially the London work culture, is a bit like you know you'd find in New York or Frankfurt. I mean, right. they will not settle. They um, majority of them have quite the work ethic. You know, right. they really strive uh, grind, and live yeah. and exist for their jobs. And they really, you know, things like being successful, doing a nine to five just does not exist. It just doesn't exist. Um, doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. It doesn't exist. 
that I think if I have one complaint about the office culture in, 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 in Nairobi at least is that if you're not careful, there's a, a relaxed nature to things and uh, an acceptance of uh, um, a lack of perfection. <laughs> yes. Right. So, and that, that's something you really have to watch out for. And I think it's just, yeah, it's just the environment um, that, yeah. that we're in. Yep. Um, and I think the younger ones expect to make it overnight. And mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. I think those are only two complaints. Other than that, great culture, great teams, very friendly, uh, intelligent. Um, but you really have to watch the, yeah. The struggle. It's a struggle. You know exactly <laughs> what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man. Uh, it's it's definitely. I I will I will I will just say it here, man. It is my biggest challenge. It is it is a culture of the people. It is it is shifting the mindsets to folks to really understand that pursuit of excellence is is just part for the course, right? When you're competing the global, if you're when you're competing globally, that's basically the expectation. Um, no, but it's it's wait. it's not really the culture because if you think traditionally we are not like that and going out into the farms on the rural areas, those guys kill themselves. It's really a town uh, office thing. And if you it's go shopping, yeah, like if you go shopping, for example, in London or in the US, the, the chances that you will not be greeted, welcomed, um, someone tries to be helpful, um, you know, the customer attention is just a lot more on point. Right. Uh, here, you can sort of go to a shopping center and walk straight through a clothes department and no one says hello to you. Or you ask for something and they, exactly, you ask for something and they tell you, no, we don't do that without offering you any other alternative. Any you know, other solution, that, yeah. Yeah, it's just that lack of that little bit of, you know, just engagement. That, yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. I'm here. What more do you want from me? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. But I think part of that is also management historically have kind of, you know, maybe not given people the leeway or the freedom to kind of think for themselves. It's, it's a weird, one. it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough mix, but let's, let's wrap up this podcast because you know, we can go sure. on and on about this particular topic because yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. it's a big one. So, so I just, we're just going to go through these last three questions. Um, a couple of a couple of themes and then a rapid fire round. So, mm -hmm. what are some of your biggest challenges in the last in entrepreneurship that you've experienced? Biggest challenges? I think dealing with uncertainty and learning to cope with that and 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 getting the right talent. Yep. Yeah. We'll agree with that. Uh, lessons learned. Biggest lessons learned. <laughs> it costs more and takes. And, and takes a lot more effort than you think it's going to be. It's just a lot harder than you think it's going to be. <laughs> like imagine really hard and it's harder than that. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, rapid fire round here. Um, so I'll just ask, I'll put out a word there and you know, you just say what, what comes to mind, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Africa. Opportunity. Entrepreneurship. How can you not try? <laughs> right? Uh, and then Vision 2030, what does 2030 look like? Man, a free, a, an economically liberal Africa would be awesome. Fantastic. 
Mark, this has been awesome. This has been fantastic. Engaging with an entrepreneur who's on the in the trenches, on the bleeding edge of innovation and startup building in Africa is always so refreshing to my spirit. So I wanna thank you for taking the time to be on the Chile Match podcast. Thanks very much. Uh, it's been it's been great. Thank you. Thanks for the interesting questions. <laughs>